I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in 1995, one of the strangest crime waves of modern times took place in, in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In April of 1995, one sunny morning, a man walked into a bank in, in Pittsburgh. He walked up to the teller. He pulled out a, a gun. He showed it to the teller. He said, give me all the money that you have. The, the teller filled a, a sack full of cash. She handed it to the man. He took the bag. He walked out of the bank. Uh, later that morning, the same man walked into another bank in the city of Pittsburgh, in another part of the city. He walked up to the teller. He took out a gun. He, he asked the teller to give all the money over. She filled a, a sack full of money, handed it to the man. He took the bag. He walked out of the bank. The, the same man robbed two banks in the city of Pittsburgh that day. And here's the thing that had the police confounded. Here's the thing that, that had the, the police confused. This man didn't make any attempt to disguise his appearance. Usually when, when somebody robs a bank, they at least make it a little bit difficult for the, the police to see who it is that they need to catch. People wear, wear sunglasses, they wear a baseball cap, they wear a wig, they wear a mask. This man didn't do any of those things. Uh, in broad daylight, he walked into two banks with his face hanging out in the open for all the world to see. The police could see it right there on the security videos from, from both of the banks. They couldn't understand why this bank robber was so confident that he wouldn't get caught, that he would walk into two banks without trying to disguise his appearance in some way. They figured they'd get to ask him about it when they caught him because they didn't think he was probably going to be very hard to catch, and it turns out they were right. That night on the 11 o'clock news, they, they showed pictures from the, the security videos, and before the news broadcast was, was even over, somebody called the tip line and said, yeah, I, I know that guy, his name is MacArthur Wheeler, and so that same day, the police went to MacArthur Wheeler's apartment. They knocked on the door. When he opened the door, the police said, you're under arrest for for robbing these two banks. And, and in that moment, the story goes that when MacArthur Wheeler realized that he had been caught, the story goes that he didn't, he didn't protest his innocence. He, he didn't ask for an attorney. In that moment, the story goes, he simply looked at the police with a, a confused expression, and he said, but, but I wore the juice. 
Now, later that day in an interrogation room, a detective asked him, what did you mean when they came to arrest you? You said, I, I wore the juice. What were you talking about? And, and MacArthur Wheeler, he said, well, he said, I don't like to brag, but here's the thing. He said, I'm, I'm a little bit of an expert when it comes to chemistry. He said, I, I took a couple classes in, in high school, and I read a couple articles in Newsweek, he said. And, and in my research, one of the things I discovered is that, is that you can use lemon juice as a sort of invisible ink. He said, I've, I've learned that, that you, when you write a message with lemon juice, it's, it's completely invisible and, and people can't read it. He said it's the kind of thing that spies do. He says it's, it's the kind of thing that, that James Bond might do. And he said, knowing this, he said, I figured that if, if lemon juice could make a message invisible, then, then maybe it could make my face invisible too. He said, I figured if I smeared lemon juice all over my face, then, then I would be invisible, at least to the security cameras. And he said, so that's what I did. I smeared lemon juice all over my face. And he said, the thing is, it made my eyes sting like the dickens. He said, it made my eyes sting so badly that I could, I could barely keep them open. And so I figured that meant it, it must be working. And of, of course, the police had a, a good chuckle over that. And, and when the story got out into the news, people all around America had a good laugh about the, the lemon juice bandit. People all around the country said, can you, can you believe this guy? Uh, the next day when the news got out, everybody, everybody was laughing uh, at MacArthur. Wheeler, the, the lemon juice bandit, everybody except for a man named David Dunning. Now, David Dunning was a, was a professor. He was a social psychologist, and, and he read this story about the, the lemon juice bandit, and instead of, of laughing, David Dunning got to thinking. He read this story about this man who read a couple articles in Newsweek and then decided that he was some kind of expert in, in all things chemical, and, and, and this, this lemon juice bandit reminded him of a co-worker of his. He said at the, at the university there, there was another professor who was widely acknowledged and understood to be the least knowledgeable and the least competent person in, in all of the faculty, he said. And yet this person who was the least knowledgeable and least competent person in, in the faculty tended to dominate the conversation in faculty meetings. He was, he was the person who was quickest to hand out criticism and advice to, to other professors. He said this person had declared himself an expert on every subject of conversation that could ever come up. Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever met somebody who had declared themselves to be an expert on everything that could possibly come up in, in conversation. David Dunning got to thinking about this, this co-worker of his, and then he started thinking about his students. He started thinking about how semester after semester, it was the, the least capable students, the students who had the least idea of what was going on, who, who dominated the discussion in the classroom, and they were always shocked at the end of the semester when they got their grades and found out that they had, had failed the course. He started thinking about, about the way that he was constantly running into people who had no idea what they were doing and yet were so confident that they were ready to declare themselves experts. And, and he started to wondering if maybe this, this man, MacArthur Wheeler, maybe the lemon juice bandit was not just some weird guy who was really bad at robbing banks, but, but maybe he was just a normal human being doing a normal human thing. He started to wonder if maybe the world isn't filled with MacArthur Wheelers. What if 
this world is filled with lemon juice bandits, people who read a couple articles and decided they were experts. He thought about that scene in, in The Wizard of Oz. You remember the scene where the scarecrow says to Dorothy, I haven't got a brain, and, and Dorothy says to the scarecrow, but if you haven't got a brain, how, how can you possibly talk? Do you remember what the scarecrow says? He says, I don't know, but it seems like an awful lot of people who haven't got brains do an awful lot of talking. It's one of, it's one of the great lines in all of Hollywood history. And, and David Dunning said, you know, I wonder if that's, that's actually true. Why is it that so many people with no brains do so much talking? He said, maybe this is just a human thing that we all do. I wonder if there's a way we can prove this. I wonder if there's a, a way to test this. And so he started designing these, these simple and, and, and beautiful experiments. He, he, his first experiment, he gathered a bunch of college students together in a room. And he gave them all a quiz on basic English grammar. And, and after they filled the quiz, he had them fill out a self-evaluation. He asked them, how do you think you did? Do you think you aced the quiz? Do you think you, you failed? Do you think you did better than 10% of the other people in the room? 50%? 90%? And, and then when they'd filled out the self-evaluations, he took those self-evaluations and he compared them to the actual test results. And, and what he discovered was astonishing. What he discovered amazed him. He discovered that the people who had bombed the quiz, the people who had done worse on the quiz, they were the people who were most convinced that they had come in at the top of the class. They were convinced convinced that they must have been the smartest students in the room. Not only that, he said, but the people who actually aced the quiz, they tended to underestimate their abilities. They, they tended to be humble and modest in evaluating their own, their own abilities. And, and he said, this is incredible. This is fascinating. I wonder if we, can, if we can prove that this is true by repeating these sorts of experiments over and over. And so he started doing all of these similar experiments. In his next experiment, he gave the students a, a math exam. And then he asked them, how do you think you did? And again, he discovered that the students who did the worst were absolutely convinced that they had come in at the top of the class. He, he tested students' sense of humor. And he discovered that the students with the worst sense of humor were absolutely convinced that they were the funniest people in the room. Some of you are not surprised at all to discover that, right? Then he went out into the real world. He started testing people in lots of different places. He went to an NRA convention and he, he tested people on their knowledge of gun safety. And he discovered that the people who considered themselves to be experts on gun safety were actually the people who knew the least about gun safety. He went to a driving school and he discovered that the people who were most confident in their driving abilities turned out to be the least competent drivers. Again, you're not surprised, are you? You're not surprised at all. This, this effect has been replicated and demonstrated over and over again for the last 20 years. It's so well established now that it actually has a name. It's known as the the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect simply, simply tells us this. It says a little bit of knowledge can be a truly dangerous thing. The Dunning-Kruger effect tells us, tells us that the person who is talking the most loudly in the room is almost always the person who knows the least of what they're talking about. The person, the person who is most confident in any given room is almost always the person with the, the lowest amount of competence in whatever subject it is that we're, we're attempting to discuss. The Dunning-Kruger effect tells us that, that people who are just starting out, people who've read a couple Newsweek articles, people who are beginners don't know what they don't know, and so they are, are confident to the point of being dangerous to the people around them. This, this is true in boardrooms, it's true in classrooms, and here's where the sermon is about to get personal and maybe even a little bit painful. It is also true in churches. 
If we were to ask David Dunning, he would, he would tell us that the Dunning-Kruger effect also holds true in churches. He would say that when you walk into any church and look around, he said, the people who are talking the loudest, the people who are most confident that they've got God all figured out, the people who are quickest to criticize and give other people advice, they are almost certainly the least spiritually mature people in the room. They are almost certainly the people with the least actual experience of God. David Dunning would tell us that, that even in the church, a little bit of knowledge can be, can be a dangerous thing. But we didn't need David Dunning to tell us that, did we? Well, the truth is, we've known that for 2,000 years now. The Apostle Paul told us all about it in his first letter to the Corinthians. You know, the trouble in the Corinthian church started this way. One summer, the pastor of the church decided he was going to preach a sermon series about spiritual growth. And so Sunday after Sunday, he got up in front of the church and he talked about how to grow in our faith and what it looks like when we're growing our faith and what kinds of things keep us from growing in our faith. Week after week, the pastor stood up in front of the congregation and, and he encouraged people to pray like they'd never prayed before. He encouraged people to study the Bible like they'd never studied before. He encouraged people to, to to worship in ways that they'd never worshipped before. And, and that summer in the Corinthian church, a miracle happened. The people actually listened to their pastor. People, people started praying every day. People started reading the scriptures every day. People started throwing themselves into worship in a way that they'd never thrown themselves into worship before. And the pastor couldn't believe it before his very eyes. Week after week, he could see his congregation growing in confidence, growing in faith. He watched this miracle happening right in front of her eyes. He's patted himself on the back and said, I, I am a genius. I'm going to have the best church in, in town by the end of the summer. But then one Sunday morning, suddenly the, the first sign of trouble appeared. And one Sunday morning in one of, the, one of the Sunday school classes, an argument broke out between two of the men over, over what was the best way to pray. One man said the best way to pray is, is standing up with your hands raised to God and your, your face turned to the heavens. And another man said, no, you're absolutely wrong. The best way to pray is, is down on your knees with your hands together and, and your head bowed and your eyes closed. And these two men went back and forth and back and forth. And then everybody in the Sunday school class took sides so that by the end of that hour, Everybody in the Sunday school class had chosen teams. There were the, the kneelers and there were the standers. And that wasn't the last argument that happened in the church that day. The, later that morning, two of the ladies in the church got into an argument over what was the best kind of bread to use for Holy Communion. And then, and then there was an argument over what was the best way to baptize somebody. Is it okay if we use a little bit of water or do you have to use a whole lot of water? Or do you have to dunk somebody all the way under or will a little bit of a sprinkle? Do argument after argument started breaking out in the the church, the choir director got into an argument with the organist over what kind of hymns to sing. The youth got into an argument with the United Methodist women over, over whether to have guitars or organs in worship. Argument after argument, week after week, every time the people got together, all that they did was fight. All that they did was criticize each other and, and tell everybody else how wrong they were. And finally, the pastor couldn't take it anymore. He wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul. He said, Paul, I think I've created a monster. He said, somehow, somehow I've got stuck with a church full of experts. He said, somehow I've created a church full of obnoxious, holy know-it-alls. He said, Paul, I don't know what to do. Tell us, how do we get out of this mess? And so the Apostle Paul, he sat down and he wrote a letter back to that church. The, the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 
And in that letter, we find one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful, one of the most eloquent passages in all of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says this to the, the church in Corinth. Paul says, I am so glad that you are growing in your faith. He said, I'm so glad that you have chosen to, to grow in knowledge and that you're becoming confident in your abilities. But here's the thing, Paul says, I worry that in, in your zeal, in your enthusiasm for growing in your faith, somehow you have begun to lose some of the love that you once had for each other. Here's the thing, Paul says, without love, all of the spiritual growth in the world is as helpful to us as a cold cup of decaf coffee. Paul says, Paul says if, I, if I have all of the knowledge in the world, World and, and I can explain God to anybody I meet on the street, and I understand all mysteries, but I don't have love, Paul says, I, I am nothing. And he says, if I have got faith strong enough to move mountains, but I don't have love for my, my brothers and sisters and neighbors, he says, and that faith doesn't do me a bit of good. Paul says, if I can speak and preach and pray with the tongue of an angel, but do not have love, Paul says, I am nothing but a noisy cymbal and a clanging gong. Paul says, here's the thing you need to understand. Once you start growing in your faith, once you start praying every day, once you start reading the scriptures every day, once you start worshiping with everything that you are and everything you have, Paul says, once you're moving in a good and godly direction, the thing that is most likely to knock you off track, the thing that is more likely than anything else to derail all the progress you've made is pride and overconfidence, Paul says. If you truly want to grow close to God, here's the thing you need to always remember. Here's the thing that you need to know. When it comes to God, there is no such thing as an expert. Paul says, in this world, we only see just a dim and shallow reflection of who God truly is. Paul says, in this world, we only get a sliver of a piece of a shard of what God truly is. Paul says, nobody, nobody has got God completely figured out. In this world, all of the diplomas of all the seminary professors and all the beards of all the pastors, all, all of that just amounts to so much lemon juice that we smear on our faces, Paul says. If you want to know who are the most spiritually mature people in the room, Paul says, don't look for the most confident people. Don't look for the people who talk the loudest. Don't look for the people who make the most noise. If you want to know who is most spiritually mature, Paul says, look around the room and look for the quiet people. Look for the people who are, are quick to listen and slow to speak. Look for the people who are humble and modest in, in evaluating their own abilities. Look for the people, Paul says, look for the people who seem to understand that one day we will stand before God. One day we will see God face to face. And on that day, all of our knowledge will fade away like so much invisible ink. On that day, all of our degrees and all of our diplomas and all of our deductions and all of our theories about God will fade away. And the only thing that will matter, the only thing left standing, the only thing that will remain on that day is love. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom in every moment, in every season, in every day of our lives to seek after the things that won't fade away. God, we pray that you would save us from the mistake of overconfidence, expertise, and pride. God, we pray that you would make us quick to listen and slow to speak, quick to consider others better than ourselves. And God, we pray that, that we will be ready for surprises on the day when we stand face to face with you. God, help us not to step on each other's toes too hard on our way there. In the
name of Jesus we pray. Amen.